Thanks, band. Bringing us some hope this morning, reminding us of God's love for us. It's a great um, setup to what we have to talk about this morning. As I was talking to Tim uh, and, and others, it was sort of like, you know, what are some concerns we can pray for? Uh, you know, what's, what's your heart feeling like on, on the eve or days you know, prior to this message? And I'm like, it's just heavy. It's not, it's not heavy because I'm sad. Um, it's heavy because, you know, Josh got numbers five and I get Psalm 39 and Tim gets, what, Tim gets whatever he wants. So, you know, so I know he's listening, so that's why I got to throw that in there. But uh, it's mysterious how the Spirit gives what He gives to whomever, um, you know. And so I got Psalm 39, and there's some stuff in there that's heavy. And, you know, we've been here a year, and I said, I'm not sure that I have the currency, you know, built up, you know, relationally to deliver this word. And, and you know, without being booed off the <laughs> stage, you know. Um, but, so I'm glad that there was a lot of hope offered in those songs. And my spirit was rejoicing. I hope yours was. Um, and there is hope for us this morning. It just might not be by the means, you know, we're typically accustomed to. Um, I'm glad to, you know, see you all here. We are a little light in numbers, you know, as everyone's observed. I'll take it that your attendance here means that you at least love church more than Wimbledon. And, um, you know, I hope there was not much inner conflict or turmoil. So some of you are going, like, see the men's Wimbledon finals right now. And some of you are going, oh, Shoot, right? Some of you are going, if I had known better, I would have stayed away. And then some of you are problem solvers and you're going, if we leave now, we can still catch the end of it. We can catch this guy online. And then some of you are going, what's Wimbledon? <laughs> and if you know what all those things are, on the eve of our celebration of dependence of America, and I mean, I didn't know, you know, Ruth Jackson notwithstanding, you're going, why are you talking about England? We're Americans. All right? But anyway, uh, it's good to have you guys here, and it's a blessing to be with you, and I thank the elders for the opportunity to, uh, you know, to share with you. I want to thank my wife, too. Um, she, she missed the first time when I was preaching, and I just, it's one of those things where you like to have the people around you that are the closest to you. So she switched her, uh, her shift today uh, out so she could be here, and so I'm thankful for that blessing, too. You know, um, even though it's a hard word in some ways this morning, we know that there's a time for everything. Amen. And uh, Ecclesiastes is going to be one of our sort of texts that we're making reference to today. And I want to start off with just that, that mindset uh, from chapter 3, where we're reminded there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they, li- they live. That everyone may eat, drink, and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. So there you have it. My cards are on the table. I've tipped my hand. You know, we're looking at Psalm 39 this morning, and Matt read it. Thanks, Matt, for doing that. Um, We're talking about our short lives today. The title of the sermon is, you know, your days are numbered. Don't waste them. We're talking about how transient we are, how vulnerable we are, how we actually can't take care of ourselves and can't accomplish the things we want to do ourselves, how we're completely and wholly reliant and dependent on God, who is all these things that we are not. And so there's a little bit of heaviness to this. You know, a lot of times we come to church and we want to just be encouraged. And there's so much to be encouraged about. And we sang about that stuff. And it's good and we should be. You know, but as we just read, there's a time for everything. And so this morning I want to take this little short time and take a deep breath and have a little bit of a time for some sobriety. You know, a little check, a check of our lives to see how we're thinking and how we're feeling about who we are. Uh, I'm, I've been reading a book on on Bible reading and spirituality, and the author makes this statement uh, that reading itself, he's talking about how we read things and how we, you know, uh, take facts in and what we do with them. Reading itself is an immense gift, but only if the words are assimilated, taken into the soul, eaten, chewed, gnawed, received in unhurried delight. And he's talking about how much, you know, we just, we tend to just get information and we blow through it, we process it, you know, we categorize it, and we make it work for us. And when it comes to Scripture, it, it can't be that way. And it so often is, right? For many of us, we were raised in the church, we've been in and out of the Bible our entire lives, and it becomes really perfunctory for us. It becomes something that sometimes we come, and even on, even on Sundays, in, in how we engage the, the sermon aspect, you know, the word itself. It's just like, okay, I'm here. I carved out this time. Give me something. Most often, you know, it's give me something that'll make me feel good. Give me what I want to hear. I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it in my back pocket. You know, I'm going to fit it into my schedule. I'm going to make it work for me. And I really want to challenge us this morning, you know, to fight against that tendency in our lives. That we would sit here, you know, with unhurried delight, and, and actually chew hard on some of this, um, the meat that God has for us this morning. Uh, I, I likened it to sort of, um, you know, the difference between a meal that you eat, you know, quickly and that doesn't maybe have much, much nourishment for you and it's just something you're doing because you have to, like a drive through okay? How many of you have been, to, how many of you have had some sort of fast food this week? Okay? How many of you, well, I mean, a lot of people do really enjoy fast food, so this is counter productive. It's, how many of you enjoyed it as much as you enjoyed the best meal your mom ever made for you? No one's raising their hand to that. I frame it in a way that you're absolutely wrong. Okay, Amy Simon, you know, she, I, I didn't plan for her. So, um, 
you know, the difference is fast food, stuff that's quick. Sometimes we take it and we need to. Sometimes we just need a meal real quick, something to pick us up. Of course, most food, ironic, fast food, ironically, like doesn't pick us up. Uh, we pay for it. But it's the difference between that sort of thing that we just take, and it's real utilitarian. Uh, it's, it's on the spur of the moment a lot of times, and we just do it. And the difference between a well-thought-out, well-planned uh, meal. You know, something that's crafted and prepared with love. The sort of feeling I'm sure you, you guys have been around or participated in. I know it's not just the women, you know, who, who cook. But I'm saying a lot of us, we have moms and grandmothers. We have these feelings about, you know, where they, they made meals for us. I remember what I thought about my grandmother. We went, you know, out to Ohio every December. I would just look forward to it because she just cooked the lights out. And, you know, it was just what she did. Like, she didn't do anything else. She was just always in that kitchen. And it made her happy. And it made us happy. You know, and there was so much love wrapped around that kind of preparation and meal that you don't want to sit down to that and just, well, you do kind of shovel it all in. And then, you know, you, everyone passes out on the floor, undoes their belt. But, but the thought is usually it's more than five minutes. You know, I made reference to Shady Maple in, in the first service. It's like we live here in southeastern PA, and so this is a part of our cultural experience. You don't go to Shady Maple for fast food unless you go to the little thing underneath the big thing. Uh, you know, it takes a little bit of time to get out there, and it's an experience. You partially are going for the experience, right? How many of you have had people in to visit you where you're like, they're like, I want to visit, you know, I want to experience PA. And so you take them down to Philly, and you do, you know, the historical scene, and a lot of people, you know, you, know, you do Valley Forge, you do whatever else it is you do, and then you got to take everybody to Lancaster, right? Because it's, it's part of who we are. It's part of our fabric. And chiefly... I mean, I know when I was a kid, I wasn't about going to the candle shops. You know, mom was always taking people there. And I'm like, listen, the only way I'm going to Lancaster, as if I was in charge, but it was like I'd barter with her. I'm like, are we going to Shady Maple? Because then I can tolerate the rest of the craziness. Like, I can tolerate potpourri and, and scented candles the rest of the day if I've been fed well beforehand. But I'm like, if not, it's just going to be bad. Um, you know, we take people there for an experience, and we sit there and we take our time is the point. You know, you don't run through Shady Maple. You don't run to the front line and go, hey, I have uh, 29 minutes. I got to get me and my family in and out of here. No, you're there for an experience. You're there to eat. You're there to enjoy it. And it's that kind of experience, you know, that we want to have when we come to the Word of God. Hebrews talks about a Sabbath rest that exists for the people of God. And one of the things we actually celebrate and enact when we come together on a Sunday morning is that we believe and we're demonstrating to each other that we're resters. That like Jesus rested from his works, God rested from his works on the seventh day, when we come and celebrate on, uh, depending on how you do your count, you know, the seventh or the first day of the week, as was renamed, it's, it's a way of demonstrating to people that, you know what, life, my life is not so busy right now that I don't have time and, and require time to come and sit and celebrate with the people of God, and hear his word, and, and to enjoy it. And we, you know, hopefully don't rush in and out of here just to get our fill and to fill up a little bit and hope it holds us for the next meal. We want to sit, and we sort of want to bathe in it. Um, and this is one of those moments where we can't just hit a topic like this and go, God loves you. Everyone feel good? All right, let's sing some songs. Let's go out and tell the world God loves you because this is not something that we tend to think about a lot the fleeting nature of our days. We don't like to think about the reality that we're all dying. 
you know, because we, we're situated amongst each other and, you know, compared to other people around us, as we always compare ourselves, some of us, I mean, we don't feel like we're dying. And we, but we have a profound sense, even as I heard, you know, Carol pray both times this morning, you know, have you ever considered the fact that you one day, probably, likely, will be a part of the pastoral prayer? And it's not just because the pastoral prayer is always for bad things, but, you know, it's, it's, it's their concerns that we want to share. We want to publicly lift up these people who are afflicted and who have diseases and who are troubled, you know. Um, and it's good for us to hear that kind of stuff and acknowledge the fact, you know what, that's me. I mean, I might be fine now, but I don't know the end of my days. I don't know what's coming. They might be soon. They might be later. For us to have a sense of our lives and the fleeting nature of them, it was good for us. So let's, um, let's look to God in prayer as we start. Lord, we're thankful for the privilege of being here, Father. And as you've commanded us, Lord, we remember those who are not with us, who are imprisoned and afflicted and persecuted. Um, who make, for, for most of us, our, our lives seem like sheer joy. Because you, you've placed us in a place where that's not a reality for most of us, most of the time. Um, but God, we remember them and ask for your grace and your mercy to be on them. And uh, we ask for you to deliver them and to give them hope. And Lord, as we come to your word, we ask for the grace and the peace you know, just to sit here for a few minutes and to listen. Father, we welcome your spirit and, and we, we claim the promise that he is here. Where your people are gathered, he's there. And when your word is opened and declared, he's here. And so that alone is a huge dose of help for us this morning to get us through some of these hard words. Lord, and we ask you, you know, to help us number our days and not to waste our lives because they're a blessing from you, even in times when, frankly, they don't feel like a blessing. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Psalm 39. The psalmist is, you know, the setup for this psalm, as many of the psalms, is that uh, there's, there's a lot of inner conflict and turmoil going on in this guy's heart. And you'll see, in, if you read the psalms surrounding them, that's true. And the beautiful things about the psalms is, and here's another piece of hope, I'm going to try to give you little glimmers of hope, you know, throughout the, the sermon that we can hold on to, because some of it, you know, it, it hurts and it's heavy, is that the psalms exist, and it was really cool. Like I didn't, I didn't know that Matt and Josh were about to go into the Psalm class, and and to help us understand that the Psalms exist uh, for whatever thousand other reasons God has in His eternal purposes. You know, they exist for us to realize that God's people have always had the struggles that we've had. You know, I don't know what your struggle is this morning, what your inner turmoil or conflict is. It could be. You know, it's, it's all just life, right? It's family. It's our jobs, our relationships. Sometimes church itself, right? It's a conflict for us. 
Um, in all those things, there's God's word. There's God's people who have experienced it and they've been there before. And this kind of stuff is here so that we understand that life isn't always great. And sometimes it's just rough. And in those rough times, we come to Psalms and we find hope and we understand, you know what, someone's been there before me. And this guy's being afflicted, he's, he's persecuted, he's troubled by the seeming inequality of the righteous versus the unrighteous. You know, a common theme, especially in the Old Testament, we find the righteous are supposed to be flourishing. Uh, there's all these promises for their good, and yet it seems that a lot of times they're troubled and afflicted and persecuted. And then all the unrighteous, they're doing great. I mean, frankly, life looks great for them. Why? Because sometimes they don't have the cares and concerns that we have because they don't have an understanding of actually who's in charge. They don't have this conflict of aligning you know, their lives with God the way we do. Um, they think they're running the joint. We know better on paper, but we like to act differently. And so there's this sense that, why is this bad stuff happening to me? Why does bad stuff ever happen to us? Why is there, there discipline that comes into my life? Why are there hard times? We'll find out several reasons as we move on. Um, but his response initially is, I'm going to watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I want to be careful. I'm going to put a muzzle over my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. You know, And it doesn't mean, and then when they're gone, I say whatever I want. But it means especially when the wicked are around, I want to be careful that I'm not misrepresenting what, what God's doing in my life. Because frankly, half the time, I have no idea what he's doing. I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm desperate to. And he says, yeah, but even when he's silent and still, not saying anything good, my anguish increased, verse 2. My heart grew hot within me, and as I meditated, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. <laughs> You're like, all right, you spoke with your tongue. Here you go. So how many of you have ever been in that place of inner conflict and turmoil where you know you're not supposed to say stuff? You know, you're not supposed to say, maybe there's certain things you know you're not supposed to say, other things you might be permitted to say. He even says, there's some good things I could say, but even then I just want to keep quiet. Sometimes it's out of, you know, a holy fear. Sometimes it's out of, um, you know, just, sometimes we're just jerks and we go, you know, we, I just don't want to engage everyone. I'm just going to withdraw. You know what? If I can't, if I can't participate, fine. You'll get nothing from me. And so, I, and, you know, we all do that with God sometimes too. You know, I can't say anything good. All right, I know I'm not supposed to complain, but um, I'm not going to say anything good either. But that doesn't really work for us, right? Because we are beings and creatures made after his image, and he communicates himself, and he shares in fellowship with himself. And he's designed us for that fellowship. And so eventually we need to communicate, don't we? We need to get it out, right? Have you ever been, <laughs> been in one of those sessions with someone where you're like, I don't know what all the mess is, but like just let it out. And I mean, that's usually dangerous, right? Um, and most of us don't feel safe to do that. We all need relationships in which we can do that. And so that's what the psalmist is saying. Um, you know, and so you, think about yourself. Have you ever had that where there's just a fire and you're going, I have to say something, but I can't. But I should, but I won't. All right, okay, I'm going to say it anyway. I mean, this is what, because it's going to come out. And so there's good to have this, you know, this turmoil and this angst around being quiet. Um, we'll find that, you know, twice in this 
uh, psalm, there is something about quiet that's helpful. You know, it's a godly thing to have a sense of saying, I should probably say, you know, what the takeaway here is you should probably say less than more, right? Be quick to hear, slow to speak, James says. How many of you are awesome at that? <laughs> Amy? Oh, okay. I just figured you're out of the box, and so I'm going for you. I got, I got a hand back here. Um, don't worry. I always raise my hand in those scenarios, too. I'm like, he's begging for it. Um, let's look. So Ecclesiastes 5, you know, we hear this. When it, so let's, let's, let's appreciate the psalmist's sense of the need for silence, even though, of course, eventually we break our silence. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Now that sounds like what he's going through, right? In Psalm 39. That's good. It's a good tension. Here's why. God's in heaven and you're on earth. Let your words be few. <laughs> It's just a dagger. And then, of course, I'm, like, preparing for this thing, and I'm like, how can I, like, preach and then let my words be few? And does that mean I can only preach for, like, ten minutes? And you're all like, yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's not happening either, so we'll just move past it. But, um, you know, God is in heaven, and you're on earth. Let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And I think that's what the psalmist is trying to do. He's saying, I have a real understanding that my mouth can get me in trouble. I don't want it to lead me into sin, so I need to be quiet. And there is time to be quiet. So the first application is just whatever is going on in your life, whatever is crazy. Um, Lindsay and I read through, you know, a book in a, uh, a few months ago and it talks about the crazy cycle in our life and the triggers we have for it and how we can disarm it and how we help each other notice, like, boom, crazy cycle just kicked in. We, uh, our washer at home actually has a crazy cycle. <laughs> it's, I mean, David thought the house was coming down a couple weeks ago and he, he came darting across the room and up the stairs because that you know the sheets just got you know unevenly distributed and so the weight got to one side and this thing starts whipping around and shaking and jumping across the floor you know and it's just nuts and it's like okay so all of our lives think about the area of your life in which it's reflected by that scenario the crazy cycle where stuff just hits you and you go insane you know, it just pushes you over the edge. In those moments, first of all, you know, we need to understand it's good for us to just shut up. <laughs> it's good for us to be quiet, not give an immediate assessment of what's going on and just go, all right, you're God, I'm not, I need to be quiet. And that sort of attitude sets us up for the harder things that are coming. Because even after he's quiet and it's appropriate to speak at some time, this is what he says, verse 4. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. 
Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. And so, you, you know, there's all kinds of things that we, we can't obtain answers to, we don't get answers for in life. And they're what, they're what often put us on the crazy cycle. And so we think, you know, when we've, when we've been silent and we've sat on things and when it's appropriate to speak, you know, you would think, you ask, okay, Lord, so what's my way out? Like, how is this thing going to get fixed? So the righteous are flourishing. Um, I'm hot within myself. Uh, these, I'm trying to guard my tongue. And so the, the obvious question would be, God, you know, show me how to make sense of this stuff, the stuff that's wrong. But instead, the writer says, Lord, help me understand how fleeting are my days. And this guy actually knows something, and you know this tr- you know you know this to be true as well i 'm not telling you something new in the sense that any of you actually thought you would live forever today, and we know spiritually we have that option in Jesus, you know everlasting life, but when we talk about our life on the earth it 's temporal it 's fleeting. I mean, if I had taken a poll at the door when you guys came in, nobody would have been like, "I checked the box that says i'm I got it i 'm never going to die okay I mean, in, in, what is it, Enoch and Elisha? I mean, not too many people get translated, get taken, because you're walking so close with God that he just wants you with him, or for whatever purposes he does those sorts of things. You know, we're dying, and we have an end. Psalm 139, you know, tells us about that end. It tells us that our days are actually numbered. Did you know that you have numbered days? Now, we don't ask for the actual number. That's not what's being communicated here. Lord, teach me how to number my days. Teach me how to figure out exactly how much time I have left. No, that's not it, right? Because then our lives would be even crazier. Because if we knew exactly when we were going to die, what kind of terror would you live in? What kind of worry and dread and, and busyness would consume our lives if we knew that in two and a half years to the day, you're going down? Now, the reality is, that's it. Now, the demographic in this service, you know, is 20 to 30 years removed, younger than the first service. And there's a sense in which, um, you know, the, the elders in our midst can speak into the lives of those of us who are young and help communicate, help us get a, get a handle on this kind of stuff because they know the fleetingness of days better than we do. But our days are numbered. Psalm 139 says, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, on the one side, that's heavy. (laughs) You know, for me to come and tell you, um, you actually have numbered days. You know, that's not, that's not me being prophetic. It's not doomsday. It's, it's, and I can't tell you what they are. You know that. And you can't know what they are. And be relieved by that. That's mercy. Or else we would, we would throw ourselves in the crazy cycle a lot more often. You know, but think about if there was a way of knowing that, you know, that, that we would sort of wear these things on our shoulder. I saw, I saw a commercial that talks about, like, your retirement number. Everybody's got a number, and they're carrying it around, and they're planning for it. And, and so it's different numbers for everyone, the way they want to live and retire. And then you come to one, and most of them, it's, you know, it's, it's a large sum of money. It's millions, it's something. 
And you come to this one guy, and his number, he's painting his fence, and his number says, like, gazillion. You know? Because he's, like, he's shooting for the stars. It's like, I just want a lot. I just want it all taken care of. I'm like, I'm not shooting for a number. I just want to go over and above. And so the guy goes, how do you plan for a gazillion? And he's like, I just throw some money at it and hope it all works out. And so the guy's like, oh, so you really don't have a plan. But everybody's got their number, things we're shooting for in life, retirement being one of them. And yet we have our numbered days. Our actual lives are numbered. You know, what if you had a number, you know, 33,497, you know? Pick any number you want. If we were all walking around with our numbers and we had a sense of going, wow, they're close. What if you knew everyone else's number but yours? And you could walk around and be like, wow, they're getting close. You got 10 days left. Look at the way they're living. Of course, you got two. And everybody else is going, wow. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to get our minds around this kind of stuff. I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to come up with scenarios to help us think about this reality that, like, we don't want to think about. And it's not because we wake up every day, like I said, and, and think we're actually invincible. I mean, none of us really got up today and was like, I'm going to live forever. This day is awesome because it's whatever I say it is, and I have a billion more days after it. But probably most of us don't get up and go, this, be the, this might be the last one. And it doesn't mean that every day of your life you have to wake up with that. You know, I'm not prescribing some sort of, you know, legalistic standard of going every day when you wake up be like jesus i understand this might be my last day though i am saying a reality of that is probably going to be really helpful for us because we run around as if we've got more time than we do let me know the fleeting number of my days james says they're like a vapor they're here you're here for a little time and then you vanish you've made my days a mere hand breadth there's a, there's a portion in scripture where it talks about Literally, it being four fingers. This is your life right here. Yeah, look at your hand. All right, Some are bigger, some are smaller, whatever. You got your four fingers. And if they're bigger, that's not going to get you much more. And then we think about God, right? And he describes his life and his reality as saying that his hand spans the ocean and the firmaments. So we think in comparison, of course, we go, wow, that's huge. And we're like, and we run around and we're like, look at this, God. <laughs> you know, like hold up your hand to God who spans the firmaments and be like, this is what I got. It's important. <laughs> I'm planning it. I'm working my plan. I'm planning my work. I'm doing it all. I got it. Everything set in order. And yet we, find, we come to verses like this and we realize it doesn't matter because like you're going down. Because you would never plan your day of death. You wouldn't give yourself a day of death. Each man's life is but a breath. It's a vapor. Verse 6 says, man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. Does that sound familiar? Anyone ever been on that crazy cycle? Our lives are a vapor. We run around. We bustle, you know, from here to there. We plan. You know, this weekend, has, has this week been relaxing for you? Has, has, the, has the, the holiday weekend been carefree for you? No. For most of us, it's not. You know why? Because it's big doings. And it's like, get the fam in here, celebrate, throw parties, 
you know, celebrate America, and that's fine, and that's awesome. But honestly, like, we've probably spent way more time this, this past week obsessing about this weekend and our celebrations of independence than we have considering the fact that, like, we might not make it to July 4th. July 4th might be your day of death. Might be mine. Might be the day on the way home. So, you know, so that doesn't mean we run around in fear and always worry about the fact that we're about to die in any given second. But having a realization of those things changes the way we live. You know, James says, listen, you who say today or tomorrow we can go here and do this or that, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and does, doesn't do it sins. And so you're going, why is it boasting or arrogant for me to say, well, tomorrow we're having a, a celebration. You know, we're going to go to the parade in Pottstown. In one way, it's not, of course. It's only boasting if we go about our lives with such presumptuous certainty that we're somehow almost owed these things. That we're the ones actually determining our destinies and shaping our paths and making things happen. But there's a reality that's going, I mean, if the Lord wills, yeah. <laughs> like, if God's cool with it, depending on what God says, we're going to go this way. Of course, God might drop a bomb on us and, you know, blow our minds, invade our lives in places we haven't invited him, as if he needed an invitation, you know, do some uncomfortable things. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a framework that we're going after. It's a worldview thing. We're learning to live in God's reality, not, not to allow him into ours. It's his world. We live in it. You know, we use those sorts of sayings with our kids. You know, it's the, it's the um, you know, Bill Cosby, I brought you in this world and I could take you out, right? Over our kids, it's, it's this is my world, you live in it. That's literally what, I mean, how absurd is that if I came in here and was like, and tried to convince you that this was actually my world and you were living in it. Because for this hour, I was preaching and, and you were sort of a captive audience, which you're not, you know? Or that there's anything really special going on right now with me and my life and my moment. This is, this is nothing. This is something that was given to me. And you can walk out or not. You can stay here. Nothing's being, like, I'm not doing any magic tricks here. Like, I don't own you. It's not my thing. This is not my church. This is not my hour. It's God's. God actually says, can say, and get away with saying, this is my world. You just live in it. And he actually says to us this morning again, and by the way, you're going to die in it. You are going to die. And that, of course, ought to affect the way we live. We're, we're, we're mere phantoms, the text says. You know, we hustle around. We do this and that. Um, at any moment, good or evil could be waiting for us. And the psalmist is going, why are all these bad things happening? I mean, Luke 13 talks about the Tower of Siloam. And people are trying to understand, why did this tragedy happen to these people? And he goes, no, 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 you're missing it. Repent, or you'll likewise perish. It just happens. It happens because God says so, and he sets these things in order. The 18 on, on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, he said, do you think you were more righteous than them? You're going to play those games and say, what happened to them because they were in sin? 
He's going, the next one's coming on you. You know, John 9, the blind, the blind boy. Who sinned, him or his parents, that he was afflicted with this disease? We've got to be able to make sense and wrap around this craziness. Who did it? What's the reason? No, no, no. So that the works of God could be shown in him. Like, you're never going to get the reason. You're never going to get the satisfaction that you're looking for in, in this life if we're demanding answers for things that God sometimes does not give answers for. We're phantoms. We bustle about. We heap up wealth not knowing who will get it. We, we, we load up our, you know, our retirement accounts and we plan for them and we strategize and, and we, we think that it's for us. Or maybe it's an inheritance for my kids. And the reality is, that money is not even yours. You're not getting it. You're dying. Okay? You came into the world. I came into the world. We brought nothing in and we're taking nothing out. That's what Ecclesiastes is all about. But now, Lord, what do I look for? The psalm says. My hope is in you. In the midst of all this, in the midst of the crazy cycle, in the midst of the reality that your days are numbered and you're dying. What point is there? Go read Ecclesiastes. If you ever are tempted to complain when you shouldn't, then there's the spiritual reality of going, we've got to be able to ask these questions out loud and, and really have the struggle. You know, that's what Ecclesiastes is for. The wisest and one of the richest guys ever is going, everything I try to make sense of comes up empty. It's vain, it's futile. So wherever you're at in your life today that is just crazy and out of your mind nuts and frustrating and infuriating, here's something that's going to help you. Realize, you know what? You're going to die soon. You need to chill about that kind of stuff. And you need to realize the only thing that's worth anything is that your hope is in Jesus. He says, save me from all my transgressions and don't make me the scorn of fools. You know, the reality that my hope is in God, and we sang about this forgiveness and my transgressions can be covered. David said, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are not counted toward him. And in other, words, other places in the Psalms, it says, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who should stand? None of us. We're all guilty. That's the message of the Tower of Siloam. This didn't fall because they were evil and you're good and so you were spared. You're evil too. Repent. And so the message goes out to us, you know what? You're dying. I'm dying. We're all about to die, whether or not that's 20 minutes, 20 days, 20 years, or more. It is a reality. It's not something we like to talk about. It doesn't make us feel good. It should affect the way we live so that we won't be wasting our lives. Again, he says, I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. We read that portion in Ecclesiastes to start, and that's what he comes to the end and goes, he says, you're the one who's done this, Lord. The good and the bad. The time for this, the time for that. The time for something that's great and the time for something terrible. You're doing them both. And he says, remove your scourge from me. I'm overcome by the blow of your hand. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. In Hebrews 12, it talks about how God disciplines us. And he disciplines us because he loves us. And you think, like, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make me feel good. You know, we never share that with people on the street. Hey, are you a sinner? Half of them, of course, no. Uh, if you can even get them to acknowledge that, and as you share that, okay, well, then here's the good news. Jesus saves sinners. You can be forgiven. 
by the way, you're going to die soon, and God's going to discipline you. And, and he's going to, like, if, if you get in this relationship with God, he's going to discipline you because you're his kid. Like, nobody wants to hear that. That doesn't offer any hope, except we realize that unlike us who discipline imperfectly, and even though we love our kids sometimes, and sometimes the right way, God's always disciplining for our good. And it says that in Hebrews 12, it says those who receive it and are trained by that discipline grow in holiness and understand that this is actually a sign of God's love for us. And so even these kind of days, even Psalm 39 days, are for our good. And even the reality that our lives are short and we're about to die, that reality is for our good. And sometimes it feels like affliction and punishment and discipline. You know, it's, it's who can bear this, God? This is too much for me. That's what he says. I mean, look away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. He's not saying look away from me long term. It's not going, I don't want anything to do with you, God. It's saying this stare of discipline, this weight I feel, you've got to turn that aside or I'm going to die from it. You know, you know the gaze of your father when your dad could give you that look. Okay, I'm only two or three years into that with David when sometimes it's just like, all right, cut the games. I'm not playing this game. I'm not bartering with you. I'm not dialogue. It's not dialogue. It's a monologue. And, all right, and I'm just going to stare at you until you understand that it's just going down right here, right now. And there's this moment where he just is just like, and he said this to me before, it's just like, that doesn't feel right. And it's like, Daddy, please don't be that way. It's like, Dada, why you stare at me? And I'm like, because you weren't responding to anything else. And all of a sudden, I got you dialed in. And, God's, and, and, and we're saying, God, remove that sort of stare from me long term. Um, so before I depart, I'm no more. Like we have this sense of what discipline does to us. Hear my prayer, verse 12, and listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I'm an alien and a stranger. So here's the takeaway. We are strangers here. Our citizenship is where? Heaven. And so sometimes on the earth, it's awesome. And sometimes everything feels like it's going right. And sometimes it's like this. And sometimes we come to passages where it's like, don't say it. Don't come. I did not want to come on, on a, you know, a weekend where I'm happy and celebrating and have you tell me that I'm about to die and I should deal with it and it should actually help the way I live. But the Bible says that. And what we're trying to do, you know, when we come to the word is we're trying to engage in God's reality and undo the fantasy we have in our lives that we treasure and we nurture that says, my life is my own. I got as many days as I want, and I'm going to do whatever I want with them. You know, we're, we're, it's, the, it's the spirit of Jonathan Edwards who in his ninth resolution says he's going to think often upon the day of his death. He's going to think about it because it's a reality. It's coming for him. And I want to close with a thought, a few thoughts from a book I've been reading. And it's talking about our disposition to the Bible. How do we engage that kind of text, that reality, these hard things? Um, you know, we need to rethink. We do not read this book and the subsequent writings that are shaped by it in order to find out how to get God into our lives, to get him to participate in our lives, our fleeting, pathetic, uncontrollable, uh, you know, lives. We open this book and find that page after page, it takes us off guard surprises us and draws us into its reality, pulls us into participation with God on his terms, 
not ours. I'm going to have the, um, the team come up and prepare as I keep reading here, as we're closing. The Christian scriptures are the primary text for Christian spirituality. You know, our life, our engagement with God. Christian spirituality is, in its entirety, rooted in and shaped by the scriptural text. Even the stuff we don't like, you know, the hard passages. We don't form our personal spiritual lives out of a random assemblages of favorite texts. Think life verse. Even though those are great, that's not enough for us. We don't form our lives out of those things in combination with individual circumstances. We are formed by the Holy Spirit in accordance with the holy text of Scripture. God does not put us in charge of forming our personal spiritualities. We grow in accordance with the revealed word implanted in us by the Spirit. And so I just want to say today, take a moment and breathe. Think about your short life and ask God, what does that actually mean? That word, plant it in my spirit and teach me what it means. Because that guy sounded crazy. (laughs) You know, or the psalmist sounds crazy. I can't get my head around it. But the text we favor most actually is not the Bible, of course. It's unpopular. It's the sovereign self. A friend told me recently of an acquaintance, a lifelong reader of the Bible, which many of us are, who realized one day that his life was not turning out as he thought the Bible said it would. He decided then and there, in his words, to make my life my authority instead of the Bible. Most of our culture, secular and religious, supports this man's decision. It's become characteristic of our society. But the results are not encouraging. The groundswell of interest in spirituality as this new millennium has opened up does not seem to be producing any discernible outpouring of energetic justice and faithful love, two of the more obvious accompaniments of a healthy and holy Christian life. In fact, we've arrived at a point now when the term spirituality is more apt to call to mind dabblers in transcendence than lives of rigor, exuberance, goodness, and justice, the kind of lives historically associated with this word, the Bible. Christians can hardly fail to take account of the popularity of these self-sovereign spiritualities. Sometimes to be impressed by some of the spiritual pyrotechnics. Occasionally even to ooh and ah over them. But mature reflection, the kind we need this morning, doesn't provide encouragement to go in for those kind of spiritualities ourselves. We have to go in for the Bible. And the Bible's not always easy. And relationship with God is not all roses. Sometimes it hurts, sometimes it's crazy, and sometimes we get told that our lives are about to end and we need to deal with it and we need to think about what that does for us. And in the midst of it, that's our buy-in. Our buy-in with Jesus and the Word in the good and the bad, no matter what. So your days are numbered. My days are numbered. Don't waste them.